Discovering Paul, the unlikely apostle. I'm going to be preaching out of Galatians 1. Make sure I'm getting recorded here. And so what we're going to be doing, I'm really excited about this. Uh, we're going to begin a sermon series on the Apostle Paul. Uh, I'm really excited about that uh, because I feel that uh, Paul is like really, really misunderstood. Like tremendously misunderstood in, in largely in the church. Um, people don't realize who he is, what he is, what he was saying. I mean, they take things out of context. I mean... There's, there's so much you could teach about Paul. And so, you know, I, I want to go forward and see how the Holy Spirit brings life into it. Because I don't want it to necessarily be a seminary class. But there's a lot of stuff that uh, I think the church needs to, to, to understand. And so today is really on the background of Paul. Who was this guy? Where is he coming from? Uh, and you're going to see that he's quite the unlikely person to choose to be an apostle. Uh, and let's take a look at, let's begin here, Genesis 1. Sorry, Genesis 1. Galatians 1. Galatians. Galatians, Galatians. Galatia. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through a man, but through Jesus the Messiah and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, Verse 11, but I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus the Messiah. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nations, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what's really amazing here is Paul, the apostle, also better really known as Shaul, Saul, um, we, we have so much information on him compared to the other apostles. Like, you don't hear much about the background necessarily of Matthew. Like, you know he's a tax collector, and his name was originally Luke. That's it. I'm sorry, originally Levi. And that's it. You know a little bit about Peter, right? He's a fisherman and some of the other fishermen. But Paul, there's like, he, he actually feels the need to talk about his pedigree, to talk about his resume, to talk about his background. And you don't really get that with many of the other apostles. And so really today, before we start looking at all the teachings of Paul, I really want to lay down the groundwork for what is Paul's significance, what are some of the basic things we learn from him, um, and really, who is this man? And so if we can go to uh, the video uh, to kind of stir the pot for where we're going in the next several weeks. Thank you. 
whose rise continue to shape the lives of one third of the world's population, and whose witness defines what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So before you start reading the letters of Paul, you need to know who Paul was. It's like very basic, but it's very, very powerful and very, very important. Now, a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people are just like, oh, let me just read and not know who he was and where he's coming from and his backstory. To understand his backstory, you will better understand what's going on in, oh my goodness, half of the New Testament. All right? So here we go. Who was this guy? All right, well, Paul the man. What we have here is he is not one of the 12 original apostles. He never walked with Jesus when Jesus was here. He's actually considered the 13th apostle. Or some people even call him the 14th apostle because once Judas gets the boot, right, they have to pick lots and they get another apostle. So Paul is like the 13th, if not the 14th apostle. So this guy did not hang with Jesus. He did not hang with the fishermen from the Galilee. And because of that, it's really bizarre, if you can believe it, it may actually make you feel better interacting with the church. But he actually demonstrates, particularly in the book of Acts, how he feels like a bit of an outsider. Like, you got the 12, they, I mean, they walked with Jesus, and here's this guy who comes in. And at times, you actually see that he has well, some little, little carefully choice words with James, particularly, and with Peter, definitely. But praise the Lord, the apostles get it ironed out, and they're able to move forward. But he's an outsider. People are like, all right, who is this guy? Right? And the apostles are saying that. Uh, Paul writes half of the New Testament. Thirteen letters, and this is what drives me nuts. I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, about like something, that, a, a scripture verse that came up in Corinthians, and like people take it and they run with it. And like people like forget that a lot of all the these letters are letters written to specific communities with specific problems that Paul has to address. And one has to understand that before you're making complete theology out of things. But people forget that. I like, go, oh, it's in the Bible. I'm like, I know it's in the Bible and it's there and it should be there. But you have to understand that like, if I am, quote unquote, an apostle and I'm writing a letter to Bristol, to the church of Bristol, I'm going to be writing certain things that you guys are dealing with. And maybe the church of Beverly Hills doesn't quite understand like, what you're dealing with and vice versa. And so it's something that you have to actually be aware of. Now, out of these 13 letters that become books of the Bible, five of them are written when the guy is in prison. When he's in a jail cell, when he's in a cave and there's, really, there's nowhere to go to the bathroom except for a corner. Okay? Unbelievable. Very interesting is that he is about three to six years younger than Yeshua, than Jesus. Right? Jesus was born around the year zero. Uh, they say that Paul was born somewhere between three and six. So he's a little bit younger than Yeshua. Um, in the year 68, we believe somewhere around the year 68, um, he is going to be beheaded, most likely, underneath the rulership 
of Nero. Okay? Now, what we do know is this. Paul, this guy, travels a lot. Especially for the first century. This is a map showing essentially the three missionary voyages of Paul and then his last voyage to Rome where he was ultimately beheaded. Um, scholars will say uh, that this guy is going to travel 10,000 miles by foot. Guys, uh, California is what, about 3,500 miles, 4,000 miles, I think? So it's walking to California and back like two and a half times, okay? By foot. I might be wrong on the mileage to California, but I'm like, I'm guesstimating, okay? Now, Paul talks about what it was like to go on these journeys. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about his past a little bit. We're going to talk about he himself. And we're going to paint a picture and we're going to begin through the sermon series, which lessons can we learn from him? And today is really not necessarily his theology, but today is necessarily like, which lessons can we learn from his life? 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. 24. It's unbelievable. Actually, let's begin uh, chapter 11, verse 22. He's talking about the other apostles and the other teachers and how people are kind of thinking that Paul is like a second-rate teacher. And he feels the need to respond and give, give the people his resume in Corinth so they know that he's legit. And so he says this, Are they Hebrews? Peter, Paul, James, all the other preachers? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they of the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Messiah? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prison more frequently, and in deaths more often. This guy has been hunted more than the other apostles, is what he's saying. From the Jewish authority, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Like, you know, the, like the pictures of like the passion, where Jesus is being whipped, 40 lashes minus one. What does Paul say here? That happened to me five times. Now, he doesn't have the, the nail of thorns. Or, I'm sorry, the, the crown of thorns. And he was not pierced like Yeshua, Jesus did. But the guy was whipped 39 times. Five different times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. I've been in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and in thirst, and fasting often. I've been cold and have been naked. Besides all these other things, what comes upon me daily is my deep concern for the church. Because the church is weak. That's his concern. I get beaten. I get my life threatened. I've been out in the open sea in the Mediterranean Ocean. I've been whipped five times. But what concerns me is that the church is weak. And so because of that, I fast. And I pray for you, brethren. Woo! 
And I am also weak. Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who is blessed forever, that knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the governor under Eretus, the king, was guarding the city of Damascus with a garrison, desiring to arrest me, but I was led down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from his hands. So, what do we learn from his life? That's his background. Yet, many in the Western church preach a gospel void of sacrifice, preaching a doctrine of only convenience, comfort, and wealth. Boom. Lesson one. Man, we got to correct this whole thing. Get saved and now life is going to be like, woo, rainbows and unicorns, and I'm going to have all this money and have all this stuff, and life is going to be so easy. Uh, that's what we call prosperity theology. The Lord does want to prosper. I do believe that. But let's be realistic, people. Yes, the Lord wants to give me a job, and He wants to give me a career, but He also may say, lay it down. Go preach the gospel in the third world. Go preach the gospel to your boss and then get fired. I, mean, I don't know how people can talk about like bad things aren't going to possibly come to you. I mean, I'm not trying to be morbid, but it's like, man, look at Paul. Paul's like, look at what has happened to me. Lesson one. The gospel is not just about convenience and comfort. It's about sacrifice. And that sacrifice may come physically, but I think what's even more difficult is a sacrifice that comes, right, to your wants and your needs and your desires and the things that are motivating in your life. Now, what we do know is this. With Paul, um, he is going to need money. He needs money to go on his journeys. Okay? Now, scholars... Like biblical scholars will say that essentially what Paul needed for his journeys, for his three journeys, approximately 1,700 denarii is what he needed. Same. There's some room for it, but generally that's what they come to. So it's like, what is a denarii? A denarii would be the, the worker or the wage of a worker, an, an agricultural worker or a, a baseline basic laborer for one day. So this isn't like a union electrician. This is like the, the young buck that you're hiring to like clean up everything for you, right? So people are saying that's, that's virtually like pr pretty much like th their articulation of minimum wage. And so workers back then, because of daylight hours, are working about 10 hours. So a denarii approximately in today's day and, and age, and there's some discrepancies, but it's about $72.50. Now, let's think about this. 1,700 denarii. So that's 7250 times 1,700. That is $125,250. is the amount of money approximately that Paul needed to spread the gospel to the Roman Empire. Now, he does, we see in the scriptures, he does ask for the churches of Asia Minor to give him some money to help things along. But really, when he's asking for money, does anyone know what the primary reason why he's asking for money makes mention of in Acts? He says the primary reason is, have you not heard that salvation has come from the Jews? 
And the believers in Jerusalem, because of Rome, have surrounded the city and they're being persecuted and they're going hungry. I need to take a collection, not for me, but for our brethren who are Jewish believers in Messiah because Jerusalem is in really bad shape. And he says you have a responsibility. If salvation has come forth from Zion, you have a responsibility to sow in physically into that congregation because they're the ones who got this message out. So how does he fund the rest of his journeys? I'm sure he gets a little bit, but we know that he's a tent maker. This is a dude who's working. Not that you have to always work in the kingdom. I'm not preaching that, but what what I'm trying to show to you is that this guy believed in this message so much that he is giving it all. Because the gospel comes with a sacrifice. And he desires to give it. And my prayer is that we desire to give it. So, another thing from Paul. The spreading of the gospel costs money. And that usually comes with a personal sacrifice. Lesson two. Us giving a tithe unto the Lord is giving him a gift. What's a sacrifice? What you believe that you cannot give. It is giving to the place of, ooh, ooh, that pricked, that hurt. Anything else is just a love offering. You're just like, hey, I want to give God like a birthday gift. Right? You give the kid a gift, like, you, get, like we, you know, we have kids, you get invited to birthdays like all the time. You're like, all right, we'll go to a birthday party and you just give them like a little gift. But a sacrifice is like, poof, right? Sacrifice would be like, oh, you know, your, your daughter's getting married. And you're like, whoa. Now we're talking sacrifice, right? If you buy into that whole Western marriage thing. <laughs> All right. Man, that's just, that's just like, that's like page one. Come on, anyone stirred yet to live a life of sacrifice for Jesus? couple of you, good. You're getting there. I mean, you're getting there. Thank you for your honesty. Come on. You seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you, right? But seeking the kingdom sometimes, if not always, comes with some type of sacrifice. And Paul is showing that. All right, well, who was Paul before he meets Jesus on a road to Damascus, which is in Syria? Who is this guy? He, tell, he, tell us, he tells us. Yeah, there's a lot of things. Murderer. What were some of the other things I heard? Yeah. What? A Pharisee. Kidnapper. Well, Philippians, the book of Philippians actually tells us all these things. For those of you who are not, uh, uh, have not learned all this. He says he's from the tribe of well, Philippians and Corinthians. He says that he's, a tr- he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which means that he is Jewish. The very fact that he's from the tribe of Benjamin means a whole wow thing, which I, I, I think is a wow thing. I taught on that like maybe two years ago. It was very interesting. Uh, he says that he is um, zealous for the law. He says that he uh, was born in Tarsus, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, he, we know for a fact, uh, was a Roman citizen. Now, the fact that he was a Roman citizen probably means that he comes from a wealthy family. 
Like his family probably was not like up against the ropes. He's living up in Tur born in Turkey. Uh, there's a large trade center up there. Uh, he is a tent maker. His family probably was in mercantile and cloth. He probably was making, his family probably was making a good living. Because they were able to get Roman citizenship. You don't just get Roman citizenship. I mean, if you're a Jew, you don't just like, oh, I get Roman citizenship now. You have to buy it. It was very costly. And so this is a, a, another misconception of Paul, or maybe one of the first ones. It's this. His name was not changed. It wasn't changed from Saul to Paul. He goes by both names. Okay? He goes by Saul, or Shaul, uh, when he's engaging in the Jewish world. Okay? Now, Peter has his name changed. Right? It's like, in a sense, in, in Scripture. Like, there's a moment. I shall call you Petra. Right? Well, with Paul, his name is Saul, and then the scriptures say Saul, who is uh, Saul, who was also known as Paul. Now, why, why, why two names? He go, his birth name is Shaul, which is Saul from King Saul. He takes the name Paul when he's engaging in a different community. When he's engaging with the Jewish world, his name is Saul because they speak Hebrew. When he speaks to the Roman world, he uses the word, the name Paul, because that is a Latin name or a Greek name, right? So what we have here is he, it's not like, oh, like, you got to understand, like churches will do this, right? Oh, Saul is the, the Jewish rabbi who's persecuting the church. Now his name is Paul, and now he is a Christian. Blah, blah. That's not what's going on. When he was a little boy, as a Roman citizen, he probably went by Saul and Paul. When he's hanging out with his brothers in the yeshiva, in the Jewish learning schools in Jerusalem, they're calling him Shoal. And when he's working at his family business and he's interacting with the Greek world, he's probably going by Paul. And you have to understand that. Very important. It says that he is a Pharisee of Pharisees. This guy is like, you have the Pharisees, which are learned, educated people of rabbinical thought. And he's like, man, I was a Pharisee of them. Like, I, boom, high level. So high level that the scholar R.C. Sproul says that Paul most likely today, would have, just to try to gain an understanding, would have the equivalent of two PhDs. Okay? That kind of equivalency. Uh, the man we know spoke and wrote Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and most likely Latin. Pretty crazy. He says that uh, we know that he is a student before he gets saved. He's a student of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. So famous that Warren G. Harding, president of the United States, the G stands for Gamaliel. Now let's talk about this, this student of rabbi Gamaliel. So we know at age 12, because that's when uh, Jewish people did the bar mitzvah 2,000 years ago. At age 12, Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he's in the temple. And he's questioning the rabbis. And the rabbis are questioning him. And they're like, oh my goodness, who is this man? Or who is this boy? What's very interesting is we know because how would you become a rabbi of Paul's note? We know that somewhere around the age of six, the rabbi Gamaliel would look at the children and see promise in them and says, all right, you're one of mine, you're one of mine, you're one of mine. And so here's what's really crazy. When Yeshua is questioning the rabbis, and now he's going to go back to Galilee to do his Lord's business, right down the street in Jerusalem, most likely there's a young boy by the name of Shaul. 
And a rabbi by the name of Gamaliel says, I see promise in this young one. He's going to study underneath me. We know that through scholarship. That's probably when it would have happened. Because this, this boy shows tremendous talent. And you know he shows tremendous talent because of what he's doing as a Pharisee of Pharisees and some of the actions that he's doing before he comes to the Lord. Well, who is this guy Gamaliel? And we need to know this. You better understand Paul. Newsflash, right? Both Yeshua and Paul were, and Jesus still is in a sense, a Jewish rabbi. And so Paul is, is a student of Gamaliel, which we know, because he says it. And who is this guy Gamaliel? Gamaliel uh, was this famous rabbi, but he's not just a rabbi. He receives the title of Nasi. And Nasi in Hebrew means prince. This is given to a teacher who is like, essentially, the rabbi over rabbis. Like, super, super high level. Like, you get the title Nasi if future rabbinical students will be reading your works. Like, people still read the works and teachings of Gamaliel in Jewish circles. So this is not just a regular rabbi. This is like, top level. You following? I know, it's a little bit like historical today, but we got to lay the groundwork. So, what we do know, and I was reading this, researching this in, the Jew in Jewish sources, okay, that Gamaliel was known for several things when he taught. Um, he was known for the importance of teaching his students on community welfare. So here's a rabbi in the first century who would teach his students how, what do we do with the poor? with the widows and the orphans. Community welfare, what do we do with them? How do we appropriately take care of them? What is the correct biblical response by God for us to do this? These are not believers, but they believe in the one true God. And that's their articulation. The other thing that Gamaliel is known for is the teachings on sexual relations and divorce. How do you engage, what is the appropriate ways to engage in sexual intercourse? When do you withhold sex from your partner? What do you do with divorce? Um, his big focus was that during times of divorce, we need to protect the rights of the woman. Because the first century, like, women are having no rights. Like, you get married, you get divorced, like, your life is done. done. You're not getting remarried back then. You are not having any money. And so he's very focused on like, what do you do to do this in an honoring way if divorce is the way? Now, I think this is very fascinating. Because if you take a look at the, the epistles of Paul, he spends a lot, a lot of time on those topics. Like he talks about sex quite a bit, actually, for an apostle. He talks about like the only time that you are not to have sexual intercourse with your spouse is for times of fasting and prayer. That's it. But if one person doesn't want it and the other person does, you do it. You don't do it during times of fasting and prayer. He talks about the widows. He talks about orphans. He talks about what do you do in all these types of things. And he even dives into the complexities of divorce. I find this very interesting because Jesus doesn't really talk about sex. So where's Paul getting this? Obviously from the Holy Spirit, but come on, let's be real. He's getting some of this from the teachings of what he was learning. Uh, the third thing um, that I think is really, really what's important for our understanding of things is this. Gamaliel was considered to be a part of a more liberal branch of the Pharisees. Like, this is not like me. This is like the actual, like, Jewish 
writings of the time. They say Gamaliel was a little bit more liberal. And what we mean by liberal is he was more uh, open. He was open to discussions. He was open to inquiry. He was open to questions. So that is what Paul is residing in. And this is where things really come alive for us. Uh, we see this in Acts chapter 5. Some of Gamaliel's t- uh, students come to him in Jerusalem and say, Gamaliel, Gamaliel, we did, have you heard of this guy Jesus? Have you heard about his, his, his disciples and everything that they're doing? Teacher, teacher, Nasi, Nasi, Prince, Prince, tell us what are we to do with, these, with this new teaching that is going around? And Gamaliel famously responds in such a manner. Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all, by the people, said to the men of Israel, this is his students, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. These men being the apostles. Like the Jewish authority want to imprison these guys and kill them. And here is a rabbi that says, whoa, watch it. Watch it. Be careful what you do regarding these men. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. So this is from the book of Acts. Gamaliel, who is not calling on the name of Jesus that we know of, is wise enough to say, come on guys, come on my disciples, you're going to put these guys in prison because they're teaching about this? Like, leave them alone. Because the worst thing that will happen is if it's a teaching of men, other teachings of men, of messiahs have come and gone, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to fizzle out. But, if it's of God, you best be not be stopping it. So, this is very bizarre. Because what's going to happen here is Paul, the student of Gamaliel, is going to go big time rogue. Some of you know. Is this like somewhat interesting or no? Okay, yeah, because I'm like, like, when was, I mean, has anyone ever like sat down like, who is Gamaliel? Who is Paul the Apostle? What's going on, right? No one's ever heard this. Okay. All right. Well, I was like, oh, it's, it's a little bit more teacher-like, but you know, we need to do that in the church. Yeah, we've got to educate people. Right? So here we go, right? So Paul goes rogue. He's sitting underneath the teaching of this guy, Gamaliel, who's, who's known for like this kind of liberal kind of thought process. And I, and I think Paul is just like, what the heck, man? You're, you're, you're saying that this, this Jesus is a, could be a rabbi and he could be a son of God? Like, how can you be saying that? And Paul switches teams, man. He's like, I don't want to be underneath this understanding, Nasi Prince. I am going to leave this, and I'm going to go to the violent side. I'm going to now go to the zealot side. How can I listen to Gamaliel? And we know this. This is, this is dark stuff. Acts chapter 7. This is, this is the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. He's living in Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel. The Pharisees are going to come to him and they're going to stone him for blasphemy. Now listen to this. This is creepy. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. They, the, the, the Jewish authority, the, the Pharisees. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was there when the first martyr is being martyred. And he's a young boy. 
kind of, sort of, a young man. And he's collecting the clothes of all the people that are, are really Stephen's clothes. <whistles> then it goes on to say here, in verse, chapter 8, now Saul was, this is before Saul becomes a believer. Now Saul was consenting to his death. This is the death of Stephen. At that time, a great persecution arose against the believers, the church, which was in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc on the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So this is a guy who's so zealot and so violent that he's a part of murdering believers. He's a part of breaking into your house and taking your children and taking your wives away from you and throwing you into a prison. That is this guy. Crazy, right? Now that's, 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 that's one. That's the first thing that, that happens with him. And there's his first little departure. And now there's another departure by Paul. I mean, this guy's like switching teams all the time. Acts 9, just a couple of verses later. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to bring to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way. Haderach, the way is the original name for a follower of Jesus, not Christian. It's the way. You're part of the way, the truth, the life. He wants to get letters to go to Damascus so if he sees anyone who's following Yeshua the rabbi, that he has a letter from the Jewish authority that says, I can take you. I have a writ for your arrest. So this is what he's doing. He's living, leaving northern Israel and he's going to Damascus. And as he journeyed, verse 3, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you're reading a word, it's written in red, meaning this is Jesus speaking. And now Paul says unto him, who are you, Lord? The Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Then the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Then a soul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus, and there he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Saul is about to arrest people like you and I. But when he's walking, there's a great flash of light. He falls to the ground. He becomes blind and he hears a voice. Why are you doing this to me? Who are you? I am the Lord, the one that you are persecuting. I am Jesus, the Lord. Why are you doing this to me? And he's like shaking. He's like, oh my gosh, I'm blind. And all this kind of crazy stuff. And, and now Jesus says unto him, the people that are with you, they're going to hand you into the city. And I'm going to bring a guy by the name of Ananias to come and teach you about things. And, he, and, and he's going. And I'm like, holy cow. Can you imagine what's going on in this man's mind? The first thing I think that goes through his mind is, oh my. Gamaliel was right. I should not have gotten in the way. 
Because this could have been God. My teacher, Gamaliel, was wise enough to know, watch out. The great Nasi, the great prince, rabbi. But the other thing that goes through his mind is, wow, I have a new rabbi now. And he's not a prince. He's Hamelech. He's the king. The king of kings. The ultimate teacher. And he's wrecked by this. He's clearly wrecked by this. It says here that he is blind and he fasts for three days. And then finally after three days he's able to see again. Now what's going on here? I mean it's very similar to three days into the belly of the earth of Jesus. But really what's going on here is essentially he's in darkness. Darkness is evil. It's not truth. But finally after three days he sees finally the light. He's able to understand a little bit more about Jesus. And he's exposed to the truth. And I believe for the teaching kind of part here, less historical, a little bit more for yourself, is this. I think Paul, I think Jesus is saying unto Paul, I'm bringing you into this place of darkness, of three days and fasting, because I want you to sit in your darkness a little bit. I want you to know your darkness. I want you to know your heart. Because I'm going to bring you out of this. And I don't want you to forget it. Imagine for three days, he's like, I'm blind. What's going on? Like, am I going to be, always be blind? I had this voice. I heard this. I heard blah, blah, blah. You know, and he's reflecting. I was a murderer. I had a massive ego. I was striving after righteousness built upon my own righteousness. And I feel this is the next thing about Paul for us. The darkness of your past brings the truth of the light of Jesus. It bears witness of the power of the blood. Lesson three. Paul was so powerful because of his past. And he understood the wrong of his past. And people knew his past, and they were astounded that this guy could switch teams like this. And so when he spoke and he engaged with people, they were like, holy cow, this must be real. This is like you strung out on heroin, heroin, coke, Lust, pornography, alcohol, cigarettes, and then boom, you meet Jesus, and now you're delivered after a period of time, and people look at you and they're like, this has to be real. There is no way that you, who were last week, are now today who you are. I'm tired of people saying like, oh, I don't know, the Lord can never use me, I have too bad of a a past, or I can't speak well, I can't do this, like, come on, get over yourself. A murderer of believers comes in contact with the light. And now he's going to use his past, his past as a stepping stone to preach the gospel with authority. Amen. Man, you've got to stop listening to your past. Like, I can't do this because of this reason and that reason and that reason. It's like, man, you really, really need to get delivered. You really need to get over yourself. You have such a big ego, you don't realize it. No, my ego is really small, and that's why I'm not good enough to do this. Dude, that is just ego in a different shape. I was totally wrecked this week. I don't know if you guys have heard about Kanye West. He's considered one of the, the most influential musicians of all time, or at least of, the, of, the, of American history. 
Guys who are billions of dollars. A rapper, ridiculously significant. Uh, two days ago, he released an album on Spotify called Jesus is King. I look him up. There are interviews, there are him, he's at his concerts, and he's just, I'm here not to entertain you. I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's like, I am born again. My life has been changed. I am no longer talking about sex. I'm no longer cursing. My life is devoted to Jesus, and I have become born again, and I'm here to tell you about that. And people in the Christian world are like, I don't know, like the guy was a little wacky in the past, a little bipolar, he's doing this, doing all this kind of crazy stuff. And people are like, I don't know, is this legitimate or not? Man, I'm telling you, we are on the edge of a precipice of revival in this country. I am believing that a guy like Kanye West is a modern day Paul. Listen to me. I was into drugs. I was into lust. I was into building up my own kingdoms. But I've come contact with the light of God. And I'm telling you that all of those things could not fulfill me. But Jesus does. And now I have kids in school who come up to me and say, Mr. Greenockle, did you hear Kanye West's new song, a new, new album, Jesus is King? I don't know what he's saying. I heard you're a pastor. Can you tell me what this means? I have never listened to rap, but guess what? I've been listening to his album. unbelievable. It's not unbelievable. It's God. It's God. Can you imagine being an apostle in Jerusalem? What? Saul got saved? What? Are you sure? I mean, this guy was going to kill us. We heard he got saved. No, it can't be. It must be a trick, right? It must be a trick. What we know is this. The power of Paul and his teachings are not found in his PhDs, people. It's not. We know, we know that Paul was not a mighty man in stature. The early church actually has writings, descriptions of what this man looked like. This is a man who's been whipped five times. Who's been beaten by rods. Like, his body's hurt. Uh, actually, the scholarship says that he was bald, that he was stooped over, maybe from years of reading, or maybe from getting the you-know-what kicked out of him. He walked with a crooked gait, probably because of his beatings. And when he shows up in town, he's more like a little old man that's like... The man is stripped down to nothing. Nothing but the Lord. He actually tells us that he comes with no eloquence of speech. He comes with no charisma. He comes with no good looks. 2 Corinthians 4 tells it like it is. For we do not preach ourselves. Sorry. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Says it like this. Maybe we'll begin in the beginning of the, of the chapters. It makes sense. And I, brethren, this is Paul speaking, when I came to you, the city of Corinth, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, 
declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Man, this is like a pastor coming to you like, I don't know anything about history. I don't know anything about psychology. I don't know anything about economics or sociology or languages. The only thing I know and the only thing I preach is Jesus Christ crucified. But the crazy thing is he could have come at you with two PhDs. But he's like, nope, I'm coming at you with Jesus Christ crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Next thing about Paul. Human ability means nothing. You need to convince the lost, not with your words, but through a demonstration of the power of the Holy Ghost. This is not me. This is Paul, who is tremendously learned. And he's saying it's all for naught. I can't come to you and try to debate your way into the kingdom. I'm just sick and tired of people who are trying to prove that their way is right when sharing the gospel with someone. It's like, enough! If you don't believe the Bible to be true, you can't use the Bible to prove it to them. What if you just went up to someone and be like, hey man, I see that you, you, you have a broken this, or I see that you're struggling with this. Can I pray for you? I come not with you. The power of the gospel is not with words. It's with a demonstration of the power of God. And I'm coming with you, I'm going to pray for you. And you're going to be delivered from that thing tonight. When you wake up tomorrow, you're no longer going to struggle with that anymore. You're no longer going to be dealing with this anymore. Your, your shoulder is going to be healed. Your ankle is going to be healed. The migraines are going to be away. The cancer is gone. That's what he's talking about here. Not like I need to give you a three-step salvation plan of Roman's Road. Which is not a bad thing, but let's be real. People have heard it already. But they have not seen the power of the resurrection like they've done in this time. So that's your next lesson. You've got to walk with that, man. That's what you've got to walk with. That's your inheritance. Mario, if you can come on down, please. Jesus. Paul is a learned man. Wouldn't it make sense? Wouldn't it be, make total sense that a learned, respected man by the Jewish authority, wouldn't it make sense for him to come to faith and to go directly to Jerusalem? And for him to come and be like, Gamaliel was right. I've seen Jesus. This is the way it is. I can show you in all the scripture that this is the way. I can show you Isaiah. I can show you Jeremiah. I can show you Zechariah. All of it is a fulfillment in Jesus. And he could have done that and, and all this kind of stuff. But what's so crazy... It would make sense for him to do that. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Surely, 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 he would be an awesome witness to the Jewish people of Jerusalem. And surely, the apostles are going to want to meet this guy. Galatians 1, again, we'll read it again, verse 11. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man, for I have neither received it from man, nor was I taught it. But it came through the revelation of Jesus, the Messiah. 
Verse 16. This is all done to reveal the Son in me that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. Maybe that'll be next week's sermon. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is very bizarre. Paul gets saved, and after those three days of being blind, he now sees, and now the Holy Spirit leads him to Arabia, east of Israel. What? We find out later in the scriptures that he's there for not a week, not a month. He's there in Arabia for three years. There's all these different interpretations. Uh, N.T. Wright, who's like probably the most famous New Testament scholar, um, says, ah, you know, I, th I think if you take a look at all this, that Paul goes to Arabia, because Arabia is the place of Mount Sinai. It's like this big theological circle. Paul is going to go to the mountain of the law. Right? I like it, but there's some speculation there. Because you don't know if that's actually what happens. Some people say, well, the reason why he goes to Arabia because it's a safe place. He's, he's away from the authority of the Pharisees. They can't get to him. I like that too. I don't know. But I thought the Holy Spirit was just saying to me this simple interpretation. All you got to do is stand in Jerusalem on Mount Scopus and not look west, but look east, and you see the reason. That's today. That's right outside of the city limits of Jerusalem today. Not 2,000 years ago. That's where he's going for the next three years. Down to the way of Arabia, into the desert. And I thought the Lord was just saying, look at this place. Why would I bring my apostle Paul into the desert place? Because the desert place is the place where messengers are formed into prophets. Like Elijah. The desert place is the place where egos go to die and are transformed into deliverers. Moses. The desert place is the place where the Holy Spirit leads you to confound Satan. Jesus. The desert place, man. The place where things seem to be rough and there's not, I don't know what's going on. It, it's in that place throughout scriptures that is the place where the voices of men and society are quieted to the place of a confounding death. I feel like that's the lesson. To go into that place with Jesus. I imagine many of you have not had a desert place with Jesus. And I'm not saying like everything is really bad so you're going through a bad time. I mean a desert place of isolation with Jesus. Where the voices of men and the voices of ministries are not there. And the only thing that's there is Him. Not me. Not my teachings. Not some worship album. You alone contending with Jesus. You alone praising Him and singing Him in however silly, childlike way that you can with Him. Have you had that? Paul needed to have that 
for three years to become the man that God wanted to use. And so we went through various lessons today, and closing up, it's this in a brief way. The gospel is a gospel of personal sacrifice. We know that from Paul's life. We know that the gospel costs money. And that sometimes is, and largely is, a sacrifice. The third thing we learn is that your past is not an excuse. It actually bears witness to the power of the resurrection. Fourth, it's not giftings, but a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But why? Why Arabia? Three years! That could have been used for the furtherance of the gospel. Like, why, why, why is this going on? And I believe it's written in that portion of Galatians. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to men. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it from man, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. I believe that there are people all, all, all through the church that simply have a revelation of Jesus by man. And you haven't received a revelation of Jesus face to face. And the fifth lesson that we need to learn from Paul is this. You need a revelation of Jesus. And this isn't a revelation of Jesus of sitting in the pew and you just hear me preach. I'm talking about a face-to-face -face revelation of the King of Kings. I'm talking about a bright light that confounds you to not even be able to speak or to think about anything else but Jesus Christ crucified. This is not a, a revelation of Jesus where you sit in the pew and you feel good for the rest of the week. I'm talking about a Jesus where you sit there and you say, I've cost it all now as lost. And the only thing I have to gain is Him crucified in me. I'm talking, man, about learning the Scriptures. Not from me, but learning the Scriptures in the Holy Spirit when you crack it open in the morning or at night. I'm talking about a Jesus that is revealed to you that is not you just turning on the Christian station, but you on your knees before God just saying, I love you and I adore you and I cherish you. I'm just saying, man, if you want to see a revival and a worldwide expansion of the power of the gospel, you need to do what Paul did. He says, I'm not going to listen quite yet to Peter. I'm not going to quite listen to James. All I'm going to do is spend time with the living God and hear your revelation of the beauty of the cross in my life. We've got so many people that are simply leeches, that are leeching off of the anointing of others. But I'm telling you today, the teaching of Paul and the revelation of what's going on from his life is you need, you need a revelation of Jesus in your life. Not Jesus, I'm sorry, come into my heart. I mean, you got to see him. You got to see his glory. And you need to download from him what he says about you and what he thinks about you and his dreams for you in his life. That's my heart and my prayer. So that you can have a living, active relationship with Jesus.
Jesus. Not just mooching off of Mario. Not just mooching off of a preacher that you like on TV. But you go to the throne room of grace. And like I count it all as lost. Who cares about my education or lack of education? Who cares about what happened to me when I was a kid? And all the mistakes I made as a, as a young adult. All I watch is Jesus revealed to me. So I leave you with this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Messiah Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Messiah. The righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Do you hear that? I want to know his suffering. So I can crucify my flesh. Unto death like he did for me. You don't get that by hearing a preacher. You get that being alone with the Lord. You may hear it from a preacher. You're not going to get it though. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and preaching and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. To have a mature interpretation of Scripture, to have a mature understanding of the power of the cross, is to count it all lost. To know the fellowship of suffering with the Lord. That's what it means to be mature in Him. No longer a mere babe receiving the milk that is given to you on a Sunday or from a preacher. This is why Paul needs to go into the desert. Father, I pray right now that we can be a people that learn from the life of Paul. That we understand that the power of the gospel is a power that comes with sacrifice. And sometimes that sacrifice even comes into our piggy bank where we need to lay it all down to you. Father, I pray against the the, the feeling and the thought process that, oh no, my life is too bad and I am not good enough to proclaim the power of the gospel. Father, I pray that the lessons that we learn from Paul would rise up in here right now. That that darkness would be a stepping stone that's going to push us into ministry, will push us into being evangelists. Father, I pray for Kanye West. And I believe that this is an authentic belief in you. And Father, I pray that you bring people around him that are mature in the faith, that are baptized in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that they would instruct him and teach him how to navigate this very, very extremely high profile status. Lord, I pray for us that we would be a people that do not just rely on rhetoric and words, oh Lord, but we would be a people that surrender our lives to receive a demonstration of the power of the Holy Ghost in us. The Holy Ghost in us would be, would be for us, but the Holy Ghost on us would be for one that would go out to other people. Father, I pray that whatever has blocked us from having a true understanding of the revelation of who you are, Lord, that this message and this teaching today would encourage and motivate people to quiet the sounds of even preachers and pastors and worship teams and that they would just engage you just you and just just you Jesus and them singing songs unto you learning how to pray in the spirit learning learning and receiving the gift of tongues Lord getting words of knowledge and words of prophecy. Lord, I, I pray that in this period of our church that you would just train us, Lord, in these things. Father, that I'm just prophetically proclaiming that this church is kind of in, in, in an Arabia place, Lord, where there's a training ground that's going on. And so I just release that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We, of course, have refreshments downstairs if you'd like to join us. If not, hope to see you on Wednesday. We are definitely having our prayer and worship night on Wednesday at 7 o'clock. Or rather, at 6 o'clock we begin for some kind of just soaking prayer. But 7 will be our regular time of prayer. Hope to see you. Have a wonderful week.